So good to see you today. My name's Adrian, and I'm one of the pastors here at Carney Free, and up on stage with me is our newest pastor, John Watson. Can we give John a quick hand? All right. John started with us this past Monday, and uh, he is the pastor of Life Groups and Care Ministries here at Carney Free, and he's... Uh, Drinking from a fire hydrant these days. <laughs> Absolutely. Taking a lot in as he seeks to learn the way things are done here and come on the heels of the fantastic ministry that Tim Peterson did for many, many years, as well as the great ministry that Kevin and others have led with life groups. He'll be taking on those two strategic and really important areas of our church leadership for the benefit of our church family. And uh, really excited to have John here with us. I asked John if he'd join me on stage for just a moment. And uh, share with us perhaps a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your family. Would you mind uh, telling, us, telling us who you're married to and about your kids, and, uh, and when will your, your dear wife join you up here? Okay, I've been enjoying those pictures up on the screen. I'm glad we took a decent family photo this year. It sort of helps. I've been married 32 years to my college sweetheart. We have three children. One's 29, and he is graduating with his MBA and getting married all in one week. My middle kid is 27, works at the University of Texas in a great position there. And my daughter is following in her mama's footsteps. She's a new uh, teacher in Texas as well. So, yeah. And my wife, when is she coming? Boy, I'm counting down the days and the hours. <laughs> this is different being a bachelor for a couple of weeks. So it brings me back to college days. She is uh, finishing up her school year. She's a teacher. And, uh, and then after that, we're going to meet up in Chicago for our son's graduation and then head on o over to Europe for his wedding. And then when all that's said and done, she goes back to Texas and gets ready for the move and hopefully lands here sometime in first week of July, nice. Lord willing. Great, great. So John joined us six weeks before his dear wife Grace will be joining us, and as you just heard, they have a whirlwind of a number of activities over these coming months, but we're excited to have Grace here with us as well around the 1st of July. She's a delightful woman, definitely John's better half. <laughs> John, tell us a little bit about why you're excited about this position here at Carnegie Free. My first thought was, why would I not be excited? I'll mention the town of Kearney, first of all. This is the most hospitable community I've ever experienced in my life, and I've lived in a couple wow. of places. Wow. I mean, going to a grocery store, <laughs> going to get an errand done, going to the courthouse to get your driver's license, license plates, people are just going above and beyond the call of duty to make you feel welcome, to show you where things are. They walk you there. They don't point. I love it. And uh, people have just been wonderful. So the city and then the trails and the parks, I felt like this is my town. I mean, this is perfect. And then the Midwestern culture and climate. We lived in Illinois for a number of years and feel very at home. And we can even handle a, a little bit of a winter for a while. So we can do that. The, the church itself, my wife and I were just uh, amazed, sort of undone after our week, whirlwind week here in April. And uh, we found that uh, we were not, it was not exaggerated feelings. And now that we're here, we've been, I've been here a week. First thing I want to say is the staff team is off the charts. These are the most 
professional, gifted, passionate people. And uh, it's thankfully, they're very patient working with me because they've had to work their tail off to get me up to speed, and they have just floored me. Even giving me rides uh, in the hallway on the dollies. I don't know if that's a, a new thing for new staff or what. I, I enjoy that, so the fun. And then the... It's part of staff initiation. I, I like yeah. that part. That part's fun. Yeah, more is coming. Okay, good. <laughs> Surprise me. Surprise me. I love it. And then meeting the, the uh, leaders in the uh, care ministries and the life group leaders. We met a number of folks back in April, and both my wife and I were just deeply impressed. Again, same kind of passion. Uh, it's not about them. It's clear that it's about the Lord, and, and when we asked them to share what God is doing, they had lots to say because it's all about what God's doing. And so I see it as a great privilege to partner with those folks. Um, so I think it's going to be an exciting ride. And then I guess the last piece about this role, I could have never written a job description like this. I mean, it's sort of, I had a general idea, but I felt like I think God may be in this because it's, as I looked at it, it just seems like a really great fit, and I just can't imagine anything more than, than this that I would want to do. So thank God for the opportunity. Well, we trust God is in it, too. We really believe that, and it's been the unanimous recommendation of our uh, pastoral search committee as well as our elder board to hire John as this pastor, and so we're just so excited to have you here. We'd like to take a moment to pray for John as he begins his ministry here at Carnegie Free. And if you'd like to meet him after the service in the atrium area, that cube area, we'll have cookies and refreshments and a chance to connect with John there, okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for John. Thank you for grace and for the blessing it is to have gotten to know them over these past few months, and now they're here. And we trust, Lord, that you've been sovereignly acting in all of this to bring John here at just the right time. And so we do pray for John and Grace as they continue to go through this transition. We pray for their home to sell in Fredericksburg, Texas, and for safety for Grace as she joins her husband here in Kearney. And we pray for a fantastic season of ministry in our care ministries, our recovery ministries. We pray for fantastic, growing life group ministries, that we would become a church of life groups where it's just the standard operating procedure that we are in community together and community would be our context for life change. So thank you, Lord, for bringing John to us. We rejoice and we give you praise for all you're doing for this staff and for the church family. And we ask for a great transition as we look forward to even a greater future together. In Christ's name we ask, amen. 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 Thank you, brother. Well, it's so great to be back with you today. I was gone last Sunday as I spent a long weekend on the East Coast performing a wedding for a cousin of mine out in New Jersey, and that was a joy to be there with family. But I always miss you when I'm gone for a weekend. I really do. I love this church and very, very grateful for this church. So thankful for what God is doing in this place, both here in our community and then through us as we reach out to the broader town of Kearney, and uh, I love being here with you. It's great to be back. I wonder if you've heard of the medical condition called aposia. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of that. Anyone? A couple? I may be mispronouncing it. Aposia, aposia. Uh, I'm told the medical condition aposia means 
the loss of sensation of thirst. I've never met anyone with this physical condition, the loss of sensation of thirst. And apparently by itself, it's not necessarily life-threatening. It's something that can be handled with the correct intake of fluids, even through IVs. But if someone doesn't know that they have aposia and they're not taking in enough fluids, then they can be dehydrated and it can indeed be life-threatening. Aposia. I've never known someone who has that physical condition. But I've known many, many people who have the spiritual counterpart to aposia. At one time, they had a thirst for God. And slowly, bit by bit, they lost that sensation of thirst for God. Have you known some of those people? I've known many of those people, and I've found that there's many different reasons for that, but one of the reasons is people get used to constantly receiving gratification in such a way that they lose their hunger for God. The delicacies of this world, if you will. The life of constantly getting what I want when I want it leads to aposia, the loss of spiritual thirst for God. If I was to ask our church this morning to rank the the seven deadly sins, where would gluttony rank? Maybe 12th, 15th, 20th, not even on the list. Oh, that's my favorite sin, actually. That's how we would respond. Gluttony doesn't really rank high on our list of temptations or sins, and um, understandably so, it seems kind of small. But it's something that if we're not careful about, I'd like to argue today, it can dull our appetite for God. You think about our culture actually commands this sin of gluttony. There's that delicious soda pop manufacturer called Sprite that says simply, obey, how does it go? Obey your thirst. Don't ever fight your thirst for sugary products, just obey them. Obey those thirsts and indulge as often as you possibly can. Or as the great restaurateur Burger King once put it, have it your way, right away, your way, the way you want it, when you want it, your way, right away. You think even about the way that we speak of a dessert that is particularly delicious, what do we call it? Sinfully delicious. That dessert was sinful, it was so good it was sinful, that's a way to compliment the chef. Far from being a deadly sin, we tend to think of gluttony as uh, our favorite sin and a way to uh, even complement the meal. Our culture can command or complement gluttony, and I at least have found that our churches tend to wink at gluttony. Have you found the same? That this is one that we don't see as uh, anywhere on our list. We kind of just wink at it. It's no big deal. But biblically and historically, I'd like to make the argument, though, this morning that it really was considered a big deal. And if you look at the book of Proverbs, you see uh, the author Solomon and other author, authors referring to this temptation frequently because it is a temptation, so much so that the author of Proverbs says if you sit down to a meal and you are given to an outrageous appetite, uh, stab yourself before you eat. 
That might be a bit extreme, but again, it's a proverb. It's an idea. And, and then you look over in the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul said things a couple different times, like your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which would invite us to ask, what do we put in this temple, and how do we treat this temple? Or as he noted, everything can be done for the glory of God. Think about that remarkable statement that he makes in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the, for the glory of God. How about that? Even our eating and drinking can be done for the glory of God. I believe gluttony can be a very dangerous sin for us, and for some of us here in the room, even today, it could be the deadliest of sins because it has the capacity to hide or to slowly dull our appetite for God. Kind of like a dimmer switch where the light slowly goes off, not all at once, but just bit by bit, slowly the light of our appetite for God can slowly go off until one day we have aposia, a lack of spiritual hunger, a lack of spiritual thirst without even knowing it. It might be helpful to begin with the definition. Gluttony is the overindulgence or abuse of food, drink, or in modern day, entertainment as well. The overuse or even the abuse of food, of drink, or entertainment. Gluttony was considered a big deal during previous episodes of church history outside of our own. During the medieval period and during the Reformation, for example, there were actually five different ways of thinking of gluttony. Let me go through them real quickly. It was a big deal to them, and they said that someone could engage in gluttony by eating too soon. Uh, those in the Reformation period said that before you begin your first meal of the day, you really should begin by orienting yourself toward God. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, as Joshua said. So we orient ourselves toward God. And you think of gluttony of too soon. Do you have uh, school-age boys, anyone? They sit down before their meal, and before you can even sit with them, they've already inhaled two or three bowls of cereal. You just look at your elementary school boys. I have a couple of them. I see gluttony too soon. Or too expensively, wastefully indulging in $50 bottles of wine, that kind of thing. Going into debt because you're always going out to eat, that kind of thing. The ancients also said that one could engage in gluttony, of course, by eating too much. That seems obvious to us, and that's the first one that comes to our mind. When I was in college, I remember, uh, first I started at Hastings College and then I transferred to the University of Denver. And I went to the University of Denver, lived in this little uh, on-campus apartment well, with a friend from rural Alabama. And he was from dirt poor Alabama. And every Wednesday night, we would go to Dollar Slice Night at the New York-style pizzeria just down the street from our house. And Dollar Slice Night for a college student, that's a bonanza, right? So we'd walk down to this uh, dollar slice night on Wednesday evening, and I would proceed to order four New York-style slices of pizza. If you ever had a New York-style slice of pizza, it takes a whole plate. That's four plates. And I'd go through three and a half of those plates, and my friend Dexter, he'd order one. He'd finish his one and maybe have a bite or two of my last half that I couldn't finish. And one day I said to Dexter, man, how is it that we go out to dinner at slice night? I mean, this is... Uh, festivity time. This is uh, feasting time. Why is it that you only have one slice? 
And I'll never remember what Dexter said. Again, he was raised in a poor environment in rural Alabama where literally he didn't often have a lot of food. And his grandmother taught him. He said, my grandma always taught me, Adrian, you do not live to eat, you eat to live. But gluttony says, I eat not just to live, but I live to eat. The, me the medieval said that we could engage gluttony by eating to be full as opposed to eating to be satisfied. They said as well that if we eat too eagerly, again, if you have school-age boys, you know just what I'm talking about. Mothers, have you ever had the experience of sitting down at the table and uh, starting to pray and you notice that Johnny's food is already gone, he's asking for dessert? Eating too eagerly and eating too soon, and then finally eating with too much fuss. It's got to be just the food, just the way I want it, when I want it, how I want it, the temperature that I want it, too much fuss. It's the gluttony of delicacy. And today, even where modern people don't uh, esteem gluttony, they don't esteem overindulgence, even those people seem to have a thousand polite words to fuss over food. Have you noticed? This is a significant problem. And we might see it as kind of like small potatoes, no pun intended. But given the amount of time that we spend eating and drinking, think about this, the amount of time that we spend every day eating and drinking, and given the fact that Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, it is wise for us to think Christianly about how we would eat and drink. It might be helpful for us to identify on a personal level, what is it that causes gluttony? You ever think about that? What is it that causes us to overeat or to overindulge in drink or even entertainment? For many of us, it's because of comfort. We get lonely or we get angry. We feel a bit of self-pity. We feel sorry for ourselves and we indulge in what is called comfort food. And it certainly provides a bit of comfort in that moment. That's where I can go when I get into gluttony, is looking for that comfort food that fills the belly, but unfortunately leaves the soul still feeling kind of empty. Other people engage in gluttony because they've kind of uh, bought into the false Epicurean mantra of we eat and we drink and we find merry and then we die. And they think that's all there is to life is just eating and drinking and being merry and then you die. And I can and so I will. Again, for some, it's to, to fill the, the need for comfort. But others, it's just this Epicurean mantra that I need immediate gratification. I can have immediate gratification. I have the money for immediate gratification, so I'm going to find it right now. And I eat and drink and be merry to the point of abuse and even addiction. I mean, think about the number of people who are addicted to junk food or addicted to alcohol or addicted to TV binging. That's a thing now. People do Netflix all night. Or addicted to internet surfing. Certainly in the 21st century, the tentacles of gluttony have extended their reach even further. It's worth asking the question, am I overindulging in any of these activities at a spiritual cost? Do I ever overindulge in television, overindulge in food or in drink 
at a spiritual cost to myself that I am no longer enjoying the full spirit-filled life that Jesus invites us to, the abundant kind of life that he would have us have in communion with him because I am constantly satiating all of my desires with food, drink, sex, television, or whatever else. All of these things, if not treated properly, can lull us to sleep. I I loved Pastor Kevin's message last week. I listened to it on Monday morning and uh, sat in front of my computer, actually watched that, and I particularly appreciate his analogy to how we can grow spiritually cold through the sin of sloth. He didn't talk about the failure to work hard in your vocation. He talked about sloth when it comes to the spiritual life. And if you remember, if you are here last week, he picked up some firewood, and he talked about the spiritual fire of our lives and how the fire can be dampened, and all of a sudden we can grow spiritually cold if we are not intentional, disciplined, and diligent in our spiritual lives. It requires an intentionality and a fighting off of sloth to maintain the spiritual fire of our lives. And so also, if we are constantly engaged in the delicacies of life, our appetite for God can be suppressed. Have you experienced that? Do you know people who have experienced that? Their appetite, their thirst for God has tragically been suppressed by the delicacies of this world. Apasia, the loss of thirst without even knowing it. Now, this isn't new. We find the Apostle Paul treating this in Philippians chapter 3, for example. He gives warning to many enemies, he says. I warn you in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. Many of these enemies, of whom I have often told you before, and now I tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. That's big language Paul is using. There are certain people around the Philippian church who are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. Well, who are they and what is he talking about? He says their end is destruction. Their God is their, their belly. Their God is their belly. And their glory is in their shame. I would circle this in your Bible if you're following along with me. With minds set on earthly things. Their God is their belly. Their minds are set on earthly things. Now, Paul is specifically dealing with the reality in the Philippian church here that there were Jewish Christians who were still trying to impose the laws of kosher on Gentiles. And Jesus, of course, deemed that all foods are now clean, and he fulfilled the Old Testament kosher laws in his coming such that you can now eat bacon. Can I get an amen? You can now eat shrimp. Can I get an amen? You can now eat both bacon and shrimp together, just not on the day that your pastor talks about gluttony. We can enjoy all of those things. But he's saying that if you're forcing people to eat a certain way, if you're constantly fussing about food, as these Jewish Christians were doing to the Gentile Christians, well, their God is their belly. And that's the specific warning to the Jewish Christians in that age, but the transferable principle to us is for anyone, our God can become our belly. Isn't that true? That's true for anyone. Our mind can be so set on earthly things, be it sex or food or entertainment or alcohol, that our God can be our belly. 
John Calvin certainly had it right. The great reformer John Calvin certainly had it right when he said, functionally speaking, the human heart is an idol factory. The human heart is an idol factory. We will turn almost anything into an idol if we're not careful. Functionally speaking, now that is the danger. Even the good things that God gives us can become idols if we don't, do not guard our hearts against those temptations. John Piper has this profound quote that I wrote on your outline. He's an author and a theologian out of Minneapolis, and he said this, the greatest enemy, please don't miss this, the greatest enemy of hunger for God today is not sickness or demon possession. Satan's primary instrument for getting us off course is not always the big sins that we would think of, like pride or pornography. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked, but the banquet of comfort and plenty that dulls our appetite for God. Is that convicting or what? It's convicting to me. It's not the, the banquet of all these poisons. It's the banquet of plenty, comfort, constantly getting what I want when I want it that can dull my appetite for God. Now, please hear me. I am not pointing the finger at anyone because if I'm pointing the finger at anyone, I got three more pointing right back at me, as the old saying goes. And Lord knows I do because this can be true of me. I am sick when I think about the number of times that I needed to bury myself in a prayer closet and receive comfort from God because I was lonely or I was feeling self-pity or I felt rejected. And, and what I needed was to bury myself in the prayer closet with my Bible and my journal and what I had instead was a second bowl of ice cream. And I missed out in those moments on communion with God. This is what we are invited to, is a communion with God that He would comfort us in the midst of our need. Now, Jesus, of course, perfectly balanced all this. And it's really important, though, that we notice that there's a balance in the Scriptures between these. Legalism won't do. We have to eat, right? Legalism will not do. And legalism is almost never the answer when we talk about these topics, what we want to do is go to Jesus and say, Jesus, how do you balance the temptation that we feel even with good things? Because any good thing can become a perversion. Any good thing can become a temptation for us. So let's look at Jesus and think about that. Start by asking this question. What was Jesus' first miracle? Anyone? Water to wine, I heard a few people tepidly saying. Is he giving some kind of trick question? No, it was water to real wine. That was his first miracle. He celebrated. And then you think about the accusation that was frequently leveled against Jesus. The accusation was, he's a friend of sinners. By the way, you want to be called a friend of sinners. I want to be called a friend of sinners. Sinners should be thinking of us as their friends. Jesus was called a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And then he was called a, drunken and a, or a drunkard and a glutton. Look at Matthew 11, 18 and 19 up on the screen. John the Baptist, that is, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they say of him, he has a demon. The Son of Man, that is, Jesus came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, 
a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Did Jesus enjoy life? Jesus enjoyed life. He found that festivities and meals, celebrations, were a smashing opportunity to socialize and to get to know people at a deeper level and to befriend people over the course of meals. And we know the same thing, that the meals are a wonderful opportunity to celebrate with people, to socialize, to invest in people who are eternal. Did you know that fasting, excuse me, do you know that feasting is actually celebrated and actually commanded in the Old Testament? Many of the different Old Testament feasts that you see were commands of God that the people would take a couple days, three or four days. The Passover is a seven-day feast. Seven-day feast. How does that sound? Pretty good, right? But they were temporary feasts. They weren't a lifestyle. And what many modern people have done is turn feasting into a lifestyle. So on the one hand, we are invited to enjoy life, to enjoy delicious foods, even to occasionally drink a glass of wine. If your conscience allows, and if you're not with someone who is tempted by alcohol, who has an alcohol problem, you are occasionally allowed in the scriptures to enjoy a glass of wine. You have to be careful about that. You have to be very, very careful who you're with as you do so. But scripture anticipates this tension. It says this, everything created by God, 1 Timothy 4, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. It's good to be received with thanksgiving. So on the one hand, we can feast, but on the other hand, even as we feast with thanksgiving, we remember that Jesus balances this tension that he both feasted and at the same time, in other points, he fasted. He feasted and he fasted. And why did he fast? He fasted to awaken his appetite for God. To awaken his appetite to be filled with the word of God through the means of prayer. You remember well when he went off into the wilderness and he was tempted by the enemy for 40 days. In the midst of being tempted by the enemy for 40 days, he was fasting. And no surprise, Satan's very first temptation, he's not very inventive. His very first temptation was, let me take these stones and turn them into bread. And what did Jesus say in response to that temptation? He said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus had food that the enemy knew nothing about. And so also we have food who are followers of Christ that this world knows nothing about. We have food to eat that the world knows nothing about. We feast on the word of God. We feast on communion with Christ, the radiance, the image of the invisible God that Matt just referred to as he was leading us in worship. We feast on worship and we have food that the world knows nothing about. And sometimes the very best thing we can do is deny even good forms of physical indulgence in order to get something even better, and that is communion with God. The remedy to gluttony is self-denial. 
If you struggle with gluttony, if you struggle with over-drinking, over-binging on television, over-entertainment, all of that, the remedy is self-denial. And self-denial is a critical element of our discipleship as Christians. We don't like this word. We don't like to think of the amount of effort that we need to put in if we want to become spiritual giants, spiritual warriors ourselves. But if we want to become spiritually great, words like diligence and discipline and effort and self-denial are absolutely critical for us. They're absolutely required. Sometimes we say no to what is good in order to say yes to what is best. Sometimes we say no to what is good in order to say yes to what is best. Turn with me in your Bible, if you would, to John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, we're going to see Jesus referring to his disciples and to us to what is best. The yes to what is even better than the physical things that we think about. John chapter 6, looking at verse 30. The context here is Jesus has just fed the 5,000 people who have come to him with a few loaves of bread and a few fishes. He fed a crowd of 5,000, and now he's teaching the disciples, and they come to him, and they ask him for more, and he says, I am the bread of life. John 6, verse 30. So they, the disciples, said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you, Jesus? What work do you perform? They're asking for another sign. They forgot that he just turned these loaves and these fish into enough to feed 5,000. Jesus, give me another sign. Give me another sign. What sign do you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What are you going to do? Can you do more than that? They say to Jesus. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So his disciples said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall no longer hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I'm the bread of life. You believe in me and you never thirst. Come to me when you're thirsty and I'll give you streams of living water, he goes on to say in chapter seven. You think about this, they're asking about a physical banquet. They're asking about the bread that came from heaven, the manna that came from heaven, and he redirects their minds to a spiritual banquet. And it begs the question for us, to what extent is Jesus actually intended to be our bread? You ever thought about that? To what extent are we supposed to be actually nourished by him at the deepest level of our souls in a way that we cannot be nourished by anything else? I think when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, that's what he's inviting us to, that we deny other delicacies for a time, as good as they might be, such that we can be filled with that which is best, Jesus himself, the very bread of life. Do not lose your spiritual thirst by only obeying your physical thirst. He's so intentional as a teacher. He's already spoken to his disciples and to the crowds back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. You remember he says, when you fast, do it this way, and he gives instructions. Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't say, if you fast? 
He said, when you fast, he assumes that we will. He says, when you fast, and then he gives instructions for how they are to fast. And now here, a little bit later in John chapter 6, he says, when you fast, I will be your bread. When you fast, I will be your water. When you are thirsty, I will quench your thirst. When you're hungry, I will be the bread of life for you who quenches your hunger, who fills you up to the brim. The very best of life is found in the very presence of God. The big idea, if you get nothing else far from this message, is this. We actually go without in order to be filled up. Going without physically enables us to be filled up spiritually. And I pray that you have enough faith to believe that today. Sometimes... We go without physically. Any number of different physical indulgences though that we could take, I'm just taking about one or two, just talking about one or two today, but any number of different physical indulgences, we go without in order to be filled up spiritually. Self-denial when it comes to gluttony usually takes the form of fasting. We awaken our hunger for God by going without food or drink or media or whatever else dampens your hunger for God for this very purpose of asking God to awaken our appetite for him yet again. This is the primary purpose of fasting. Have you ever wondered why people fast? This is why. This is the primary biblical reason that is given to us for fasting. It is the voluntary suspension of food or drink in order to awaken our appetite for God. So from time to time, we would temporarily go without for this express purpose of increasing our appetite for the one who really fills us. Now, you can see all different kinds of reasons to fast in the scriptures. Uh, Fasting can be for uh, seeking God to answer a prayer, but that's not the primary reason for fasting. Fasting can be a form of spiritual warfare, but that's that's not the primary reason for fasting either. It can be a way that we identify with the poor. We see that in the scripture as well. But that's not the primary reason for fasting. Fasting is not dieting either. Can I just say that? It's not dieting. Fasting is this food that God gives to us to strengthen our reliance on the Lord, to awaken our appetite for his word and for communion with him. Now, Putting all cards on the table, I used to fast regularly. Uh, sometimes from a single meal, sometimes from sweets, because I have a sweet tooth, sometimes from snacks, and sometimes for a longer period of time. And, and I would share with you that some of my most spiritually enriching times happened while I was fasting because they awakened my appetite for God. But the truth is, right now, I have allowed myself to be comforted by another snack, and another bowl of ice cream, and another snack, and another snack. I mean, do you notice how we have this ability to snack all day long? And I have allowed myself, in my moments of sadness, to be comforted by snacks, instead of feasting on the very presence of God, going into a prayer closet, taking out my Bible, taking out my journal, worshiping God, and feasting on Christ. Now, this is really countercultural, I know, but 
Um, it, it's counter church cultural as well, isn't it? But this is what Jesus invites us to. He says, when you fast, you do not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And what I want to do as a teacher here is help equip our church not to be spiritually thin, but to be spiritually thick, to be spiritually deep. And so if any of this is resonating with you at all today, can I give just a couple possible applications? Would you join me? A couple possible applications. Spend 10 minutes tonight thinking through this question. How strong is my self-control? How strong is my level of self-discipline in the areas of media intake and alcohol and food? And just rank yourself from one to 10 in those three areas. And as you rank your self-control in those areas, if you find yourself wanting in any of those, simply ask God for help. And read that passage that I just spoke out of, John 6, 30 to 35, and ask that Jesus himself would become your bread. Jesus himself would become your water in those areas because he is intended to satisfy us at our place of need. Ask him. He's willing to give it. He's a good and loving and kind Savior. He'll give that to you. But first you identify it, and then you ask for his help there. Here's the second how-to. You ready for it? Fast. Give it a try. Maybe one meal, one time this week. And then perhaps one meal, one time the following week, and then the next week, and you develop a little bit of a discipline around that, and you don't just go without. You fast for an hour at lunchtime. Say, for example, this Wednesday. I'm going to fast this Wednesday. I'm going to get back in this habit. This sermon has firmly convicted me. I'm going to get back in this habit, though, this Wednesday. And as you fast for an hour, then you replace it with prayer and with study of the Scripture and meditating on choice passages in order to be filled once again with the delicacies that come from God that are really intended to comfort our souls. I think as we do that, we just begin with little baby steps, not a marathon of fasting on a regular basis, just maybe one meal or eliminating snacks for a day. Baby steps like this. And as we do that, I think that we'll find uh, Jesus' words are actually true. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who thirsts for me will never be thirsty.